Thank you, and thank you for asking me. Um, can you hear me? Is this, is this on? Oh, right. Oh, okay. Um, I um, find myself um, slightly disconcerted by some of the things Jerry said, so some of what I have to say might be slightly at odds. Um, but I'm um, doing three things uh, in this talk. One is talking about, um, as it were, popular and public histories of women, workers, and war. Secondly, I want to talk about the way in which trade unionism is recorded and remembered at the time for women, um, and really only for women. And thirdly, uh, I want to talk about questions of change and continuity. And first, I, I want to start by saying there are three narrative myths really, about women, uh, war, and trade unionism. And they are, no, I've lost my, oh, <laughs> it's logged itself off. Um, um, I'll look at this one. Uh, it, it's fine. Um, <laughs> um, women do things they've never done before. Secondly, um, as Mary MacArthur, one of the figures of my tale, leader of two major trade union bodies, the Women's Trade Union League and the National Federation of Women Workers, it's not so much that woman herself has changed as that man's view of her has changed. And she talked about the light that had been hidden under the bushel. And third, the idea that war is a period of uh, class collaboration and conciliation. I, I think the story is more complicated than that for women workers. And last, that war is emancipating, that whatever its horrors and losses, uh, women come out of it with freedom, obviously alluding primarily to political freedom, to the development of the parliamentary vote for women over 30, on which I am not going to linger at any great length. I want to argue that for women in trade unionism, there is growth, there is expansion, there are significant advances during wartime, but that is what they are, and that after the war is over, the substantial change that people feel has happened no longer endures. Mary MacArthur, who is a leading figure of women's trade unionism, organization, and representation of women's needs and desires to state bodies, starts her career coming out of an interest in trade unionism around shop assistance work. She very quickly becomes interested and involved in trade union organization, moves south, and becomes a member of several very significant bodies before the war. And I want to argue, like Jerry, that what's going on before the war helps shape, to some extent, what happens during it. But I want to take a longer view, because attitudes to women's work and women's trade unionism are of long-standing strength. And Mary MacArthur's career demonstrates one side of those attitudes. She's a leading member of the Anti-Sweating League. She has a close association with the Liberal Daily News. She's organizing among women workers largely in London and the Midlands to prevent exploitation and deprivation among women. Here, her argument has to be about the value of women's work and their contribution to these trades, but the dangers their involvement in these trades poses both to their lives and those of the nation. 
She, in a dramatic incident, traces the manufacture of a child's shirt and in the process captures uh, typhus and becomes very ill. But she demonstrates in that account the small divided labor processes often taking place in people's front rooms that lead to cheap clothing being as cheap as it is and demonstrate the need for organization among women. She's a leading figure in the advocacy of fair wages on government work, which is legislation is passed on which in 1906, and the establishing of trade boards for some of those sweated trades, most famously organizing around the chain makers, and I'll come back to that. And she becomes first um, uh, president and then secretary of the National Federation of Women Workers and a leading like of the Women's Trade Union League along with Gertrude Tuckwell. And uh, their papers mean that we have quite substantial accounts of the Federation's activities and the Women's Trade Union League activities. And in what do these consist before the war? They consist in saying women benefit from union organization and the nation benefits from having organized women. Low wages are are undesirable because they lead to a uh, tendency to promiscuity and prostitution in young women. There's a moral case, in other words, for overcoming low wages for women. Union organization prevents industrial dislocation and strikes and is a source of solidity organization and therefore improvement in the work production rates of trades once women have been organized in them. Organized women will not compete through low wages with men. Thus, the nation benefits, the women themselves benefit, the community benefits. But the price paid for this position, this stance, this propaganda, the many exhibits of working women that the Anti-Sweating League organizes, exhibitions, particularly in London, organized through the popular press is that women's work is characterized to some extent as intrinsically likely to need the protection of union organization. Intrinsically women therefore are weak without the solidaristic support of other trade unions. And the competition that women organizing face is often with the unions that do not allow them to enroll as members, hence the formation of the National Federation of Women Workers, a union for women who cannot join male unions in the trades to which they belong. The chainmakers dispute becomes the leading symbolic moment of this issue of women's trade unionism. It focuses around women making chain in their homes in small forges um, in, in the black country, and they become one of the trades included in the trade board legislation. But the women are paid less under these rules than the men, and their strike is an occasion for mass organization. And here we see MacArthur's rather typical processes of agitation and organization. She is to be seen on a soapbox, quite literally, um, among a patriotic and loyal crowd composed of people of all ages and both sexes. There is a festive air to this uh, meeting, and it is entirely peaceable, unpoliced, and 
extremely popular, and it is her appealing very directly um, in simple terms to people's uh, sentiments of justice, fairness, and the desire to make women's lives both healthier and um, happier. Here we see a, a similar strike among women workers. Part of the great unrest in the years just before the war is the mobilization among women in small factories all over London. These are German pickle makers. And again, we see union organization as an occasion of some festivity and uh, certainly a degree of decorum. These women are wearing their hats. They are nicely dressed. They are unusually uh, organizing trade union membership at the factory gate um, using conventional politics of the platform of the period, speaking again on soapboxes and getting to people where they are on the factory gate. We see this all over London. Um, and here she is demonstrating the way in which, in the years before the First World War, she's beginning to inhabit a national platform. She is the person who speaks for women's trade union increasingly, partly because of this alliance with the Daily News and with other socialist papers. She is herself a member of the ILP, calls herself a Tolstoyan, and sees her role as getting out there and organizing. She does write regular columns in newspapers, but primarily this is agitation, education, and organization. When there is a strike, she says, the union should take the opportunity to organize. She has in common with the other major figure of my story who demonstrates another way of dealing with the outbreak of war in relation to working women, the question of the politics of labor and uh, politics in general, Sylvia Pankhurst, an interest in working women and an interest in the chain makers. This is from a tour Sylvia Pankhurst does when she's really being mostly a suffrage agitator and an artist portraying the women of Britain. And that image I showed earlier of the chain maker at her forge is matched by Sylvia Pankhurst's extremely appealing image of a, a, a chain maker also at her forge, demonstrating the domesticity of this sweated role. But Pankhurst is also deeply involved with her family's interest in the suffrage. She has been a member of the Women's Social and Political Union, the union her mother and sister, Emmeline and Christabel, start in the years before the First World War. She's the first to go to London, and she designs much of their propaganda using her art to demonstrate a very familial notion of the need for the vote. The vote is about women and children. And here we see the membership card of the WSPU designed by Sylvia, putting working women to the foreground. She uses the conventional tactics of suffrage agitation as they've been developed by the WSPU, including passive resistance, the use of one's own body to incur arrest and uh, possible harm, the sacrifice of one's health in hunger striking. Sylvia even goes in for thirst striking quite briefly when she's um, uh, arrested uh, several times. She's arrested more times than any of her family. 
And here she's too demonstrating the drama of the suffrage agitation, the use of the streets to display the need for women to have the vote, to challenge that notion that women on the streets are women of the streets. When war breaks out in 1914, women organizing both for women's rights and women's uh, labor strength find themselves faced, as Jerry pointed out, with a time when suddenly their labor is in demand, but not at first. In the first months of war, the problem of women's labor is not labor shortage. It's the fact that large numbers of women are thrown out of work. Many occupations employing women shut their factories down um, or um, throw employers throw their workers off thinking that they must cut back on consumption and expenditure. Large numbers of domestic servants leave their employment. And the response of Mary MacArthur and working women's organizations is to collaborate, in particular with the Queen, to set up the Queen's Work for Women Fund to provide alternative employment for women who might otherwise, through destitution, be thrown into poverty. The army doesn't help matters by throwing large numbers of uh, army wives from the regular army out of barracks um, because they need them for mobilized troops. And we find troop dependents finding themselves um, thrown out of not only homes, but work. War breaks out. The initial impulse is uh, to worry about women dislocated, disorganized, uh, unorganized, that trade unions are going to have to struggle with the competition from unorganized and weak women workers. Emmeline Pankhurst accentuates this anxiety by organizing, together with Lloyd George, a large demonstration, very much on the lines of suffrage demonstrations before the war, peaceable ones, for the women's right to register for war work, and is much criticized by her daughter Sylvia for not recognizing that any general listing of women available for work runs the risk of undermining all trade union conditions and protections. However, the war register is set up, um, but under some regulated conditions. And we see in May 1915 the beginnings of the recognition that the expansion of the war workforce is going to have to look to the greatest untapped reserve, which is women's labor. And we find public celebration of women's labor in wartime beginning instant history, popular celebration right from 1915. We start getting books uh, about women's war work, many illustrated with pictures, as I'm trying to do, that demonstration of what women can do and are doing, <coughs> giving added force by this celebration and by the mechanisms of dilution. This is the process by which the shortage of skilled men can be replaced by previously unskilled or semi-skilled workers by either dividing the task or monitoring it so that women without previous experience and training can do part of the task, usually, of the skilled man under the supervision of a skilled man as foreman, usually. A far greater expansion of the workforce is found through what is called substitution, the direct replacement of an unskilled or semi-skilled worker by another. 
women begin to enter factories where there have been only men employed in large numbers, but they also begin to enter the expanded factories of increased wartime production. And these two processes often get conflated in public discussion by accounts of the challenge that these women pose to unionized factories. Much of the greatest resistance to the import of women into wartime factories is in fact found not through trade union representation, but by unorganized or lightly organized men um, resisting their importance in the everyday. We have incidents of women being kicked, spat at, and so on as they go into factories. Mostly, though, this production is expansion, not replacement. Um, but the rhetoric is one of replacement and of innovation. Most of the factories where the improvement in women's employment has been happening before the war go on employing female workers. But many of these factories are low-wage employers, so they too begin to lose workers to better-paying armaments factories and others on government work. The decision about what is a munition of war under the Munition of War Act in 1915 is one that extends the test case is railway wagons, which bring munitions from the factory to the supply depots. In other words, munitions is a very wide area of production. It's not simply armaments themselves. And it does begin to account for the expansion in the London workforce that Jerry was talking about earlier. Some of the expansion of housing in wartime, astonishingly, despite the shortages of materials and labor, we find housing being built to house expanded workforces, some of whom are adult men with families, quite large numbers brought down from Glasgow, for example, to work in the Royal Arsenal, skilled men, bringing with them, some of them, adult children and wives. This is, this recruitment to wartime labor is very much a family affair. Long ago, I interviewed quite a large number of munition workers in the Woolwich Arsenal, people who had stayed there and therefore had had not a bad experience of everyday life. And the large majority of them got their war jobs in through a family member, through a connection. Most of those family members stayed in the factory during the war as reserved occupations. The assumption that every adult man goes into service is mistaken, particularly in London, with quite high rates of men in reserved occupations staying in their pre-war jobs and enjoying the rise of wages and the expansion of union membership among men as well as among women. We find two main unions organizing women, both general unions. One is the one I've already mentioned, the National Federation of Women Workers. This is its badge designed by Walter Crane, a colleague and friend of Sylvia Pankhurst. His drawings and images appear in her newspaper, which I'll talk about later, but a friend to unionism in general. This badge exemplifies, I think, the narrative of women's trade unionism that we see in the National F Federation of Women Workers, to fight, to struggle, to right the wrong. This is about both rights and wrongs of women. And to prevent wrongs through trade union organization is very much the propaganda of the day. The union will protect women against industrial diseases, 
caused by chemicals uh, like lead and uh, later TNT poisoning. They would organize women to prevent them damaging their own conditions of health along the lines the TUC recommend when they say that no women should go and work in dangerous and arduous manual trades, a prohibition which is actually ignored during the war years. Women do dig ditches, build docks, carry barrels, uh, make products with using poisonous materials. Nearly every prescription the TUC mentions in 1915 is in fact undermined. But the NFWW argues that if they can be persuaded to join trade unions, they will be protected through their representatives against exploitation and defended from the dangers. They will be able to negotiate protection of their wages. Women's wages are protected in wartime mobilization in two ways. If they replace men, in theory, they get equal pay. In practice, they don't get equal earnings because men continue to get war bonuses because they do some of the work of the women uh, who have replaced them on skilled work. Equal pay is in fact eventually achieved only um, through intense negotiation through tribunals for crane drivers, inspectors of fuses and tram drivers. Um, but not equal earnings because they don't get the war bonuses and this is a source of much agitation later in 1917. The other union organizing women, which does so in very similar places to the NFWW, it does it in the food processing factories, the clothing factories, the uh, light engineering in which women are beginning to appear in the years before the war and increasingly in the war. Um, is the workers' union, a general union coming out in part of a syndicalist impulse and mobilizing people on a rather different grounds. This is about unionizing everybody. It's about organizing to obtain strength through mass membership in the workplace. Hence, its narrative is much more inclusive. It's less about the special needs of women, and it's more about young workers. Their banner, it's probably rather difficult to see, um, takes men and women alike. It has them shaking hands, uh, equals in the process of negotiation. Sorry, that was the slide. But what do the organizers of women's labor do in wartime? They firstly make a claim for women to be represented in organized labor and in government. Mary MacArthur herself sits on about 20 different committees and bodies. Um, her diary, if you catch a glimpse of it through the pages of the journal, The Woman Worker, is horrendous. But above all, she's a member and inspiration for the Standing Joint Committee of Women's Industrial Organizations. One of the consequences of war is greater levels of collaboration and cooperation between otherwise quite distinct union bodies. And this is particularly true of women whose interests are, have historically been quite marginal in organized labor. The Labour Party collaborates in this process too, although its secretary, Marion Phillips, is less interested in organized labor and more interested in household conditions and um, domestic conditions and the health of working women and their children. The Women's Trade Union League 
is particularly interested in organizing among women for whatever union they can be um, encouraged to join. And we find on the ground the competition between the Federation and the Workers' Union, which comes up from time to time in remarks about each other's processes, very little noticed. Women join the union either that their family members have joined or that they encourage. If they're members of the Amalgamated Society of Engineers, they'll be encouraged to join the NFWW. If they're members of the Workers' Union, they'll be encouraged to join that. We find the NFWW begins to use amateur volunteer union organizers to a much higher extent, and I'll talk about that later, than the workers' union. They have many leading members who are middle-class women with no need, necessarily, to work for wages. People like the uh, Susan Lawrence, leading member of the LCC, proven in local government, becomes a union organization, organizer for the NFWW, the special interest in poisonous substances. Dorothy Elliott does her social work project in a course at the LSE and becomes a union organizer down at the Woolwich Arsenal. The workers' union, on the other hand, is spread pretty thin nationwide. The NFWW is much more concentrated in London and the southeast. And therefore, where public opinion resides with the increasingly centralized and nationalized Fleet Street, we find the task is mammoth. They are trying to organize previously inexperienced novice industrial workers. They're trying to organize in conditions of high levels of work, long hours of work. Munition workers at the beginning of the war are working 12-hour shifts, seven-day weeks, the occasional day off once every 13 days. They are also trying to represent workers in the network of arbitration tribunals set up to monitor the agreement to provide equal pay for dilutees and to provide a labor supply in exchange for a limit on profits. And they are trying to negotiate wages, pensions, and working conditions. The women worker, the paper of the NFWW is revived, and Mary MacArthur sets out to encourage union organization. These novice workers learn quite early that striking is a way to negotiate improvements in conditions. And there are numerous unofficial strikes in munition factories and non-regulated non-munition factories alike. In fact, workers in the latter tend to find that they think their interests are being neglected. We find women's trade union membership, and I'm not going to try and identify individual union membership. The figures are deeply contested, difficult to disentangle, and the paperwork that would explain them, the only thing that survives is some payment records. And I'm sorry, others, Kathy Hunt knows more about this than I do, could probably tell you about individual branches. Suffice it to say that Nationwide, we find uh, women in general unions rising really substantially, almost uh, 10 times, from 25,500, and these are from Barbara Drake's uh, excellent history of women in trade unions, to 216,000. 
19.6% of all trade union members um, at the end of the war from a much smaller proportion, but still less than one-fifth. In cotton, that mainstay of women's industrial occupation, we don't see so much change, 210,000 to 260,000. But we see considerable penetration of cotton workers, 64.6% um, of all trade union members. In unionism in general, women are 17% of all trade union members at the end of the war, and 19.9% of all women workers are unionized. In other words, unionism has grown in, in war, and the conditions of war have helped it, both through state support and the extensive activity of union organizers. Women's unions are recognized in the factory through the employment and use of shop stewards, although there are many strikes about the recognition of shop stewards on the factory floor. And the NFWW has, during the war, employed some 2,000 organizers, although most of those, as I've said, are volunteers rather than employees. The Workers' Union, on the other hand, has had 20, far fewer. And women organizers are often extremely overworked and very widely stretched. But they also have different styles of propaganda. The woman worker in 1916 operates through slow piecemeal records, a factory at a time. The workers' union propaganda is much more broad brush, much more general, much more enthusiastic about the fun of unionism the pleasures of unionism, the handsome boys and the beautiful girls. What Mary MacArthur points out, and many others also, that the war actually she sees most contest for organized women over welfare provision and factory conditions. Most of the strikes that lead to union branches being set up are about unpopular welfare supervisors, um, poor work discipline and cruel punishments. A munition worker found with a cigarette lighter in her pocket, who of course risks the safety of all the workers in the factory, gets six months hard labor potentially as a punishment. And factory discipline is quite extreme, particularly on danger work. But does this lead to a changed set of assumptions about women in unionism? To some extent, it clearly does for union members. The recognition of the value of union organization to union members and to society at large is uncontestable in navigating dilution, substitution, and expanded workforce, rising production levels. Union organizers have been of enormous help. What Mary MacArthur wishes to argue against, and does many times, is any suggestion that this is a sex war, that the women demanding equal pay or equal pensions or cost of living bonuses should be applied to them or going on strike are doing so as a sex. She's always careful to argue that women's interests rely on a recognition of their solidarity with other trade union members. And in this, of course, she meets some hostility from those outside the union member. Um, this is probably impossible to see. 
She is arguing if women are to win a permanent and honorable place in industry or commerce, they must play the game. They must convince their men colleagues and their employers that they do not intend to be used to degrade standards. So the fundamental argument that MacArthur puts forward is that women's place in industry in the future depends upon the recognition that their interests and those of their male counterparts are the same. I'll come back to the price that that incurs. Sylvia Pankhurst, on the other hand, does not see the war as quite the same opportunity to negotiate from a position of strength and join in with a, a male-dominated political world. She founds a separate, first East London Federation of the Women's Social and Political Union, and then an East London Federation of Suffragettes. She founds a paper, The Woman's Dreadnought, using the name of the battleship as its title. Oh, I'm going on too long. Um, and her Woman's Dreadnought aligns itself internationally with the uh, first Russian Revolution, and then later, of course, with the 1917 Revolution. She takes part in the Women's May Day um, demonstration in 1914. Um, and in that, we see a celebration, both of the demand to vote and the working woman. And oh, yes, it's rather difficult to see. But here you see the flag, a, a symbol of women's battle to gain a political place. And her methods of propaganda and agitation are in some respects quite similar to MacArthur's. She's a great street speaker. She has a team of burly East End women who have equipped themselves with what they call Saturday nights, bits of rope dipped in tar to protect meetings of the East London Federation of Suffragettes. She's no stranger to street demonstrations and street arguments. She is seeking to mobilize women through both their domestic and maternal needs and those of workers. She is the only person to recognize the problem that the Women's War Register poses and the Treasury Agreement made to dilute labor pose to working women in that they encourage women to work for low wages in order to obtain a place. And she has a syndicated column in various labor papers all over Britain, most notably the one I know best, the Woolwich Pioneer, the labor paper of the Woolwich area. But her anti-war politics, her not exactly pacifism, her, her militant anti-war politics, based on the assumption that this is a class war and her association among others with Russian intellectuals, including Lenin, mean that she loses support because of her support for, no for antagonism to conscription and for a negotiated peace to end the war. Every time they go into action to demand these policies. And all her other enterprises, the mother and baby clinic, the day nursery, the people's restaurant, the f factory, um, they run a small factory for people thrown out of work, suffer from loss of donations. So for her, popular support is extensive when it's women's vote and women's maternal role. But as soon as it's international politics and pacifism, she loses support. And when her paper eventually changes its name to the Workers' Dreadnought in 1917 and becomes 
militantly a supporter of the Russian Revolution. Lenin is later to write left-wing communism and infantile disorder against Sylvia Pankhurst. After the war, both sides of this debate find themselves faced with the question of where to go, how to build on this strength. Union membership carries on rising. It doesn't rise so much for London workers because so many of that expanded union membership has been young women replacing domestic service with war service in the factory. At the end of the war, women are suffered, summoned to factory gate meetings in munitions factories, literally the day after, and told if they've got a home to go to, yes. or a job to go to, they must go to it. The women left behind are usually war widows, able to clear up proceedings. The end of war production has already begun in 1917 with the closure of the Russian front. So large numbers of women vanish back into unorganized trades. There are attempts to set up domestic service unions. Railway workers who have been extensively employed um, are excluded from the new amalgamated National Union of Railwaymen on the grounds, rather specious, that a woman cannot be a railway man, although women have worked on the railways, and they are also excluded from their jobs. Most uniformed service, including the military services and police forces, are disbanded after the war. MacArthur turns her attention to parliamentary politics and stands for election in Starbridge in the Midlands, and she speaks for her sex. She speaks for citizenship, and she starts with war. She was not herself a supporter of war. She just didn't strategize it to the forefront of her campaigns. The NFWW turns its attention to unemployment benefit and pensions. And this is uh, a very vigorous and classic kind of demonstration against unequal pension entitlements, making a strong moral case for war workers to be given the benefit. The problem for the women war worker is that as early as March 1919, benefits are being withdrawn from them if they refuse work on the grounds that they are not genuinely seeking work. The first woman to lose her unemployment benefit, to which she is entitled as a war worker, is a woman who has an injured soldier husband and dependent children who refuses a job in domestic service. This is deemed to be unreasonably refusing work, which all women who could be servants have to take up. And many women find their pensions withdrawn from them in large numbers. But in times of labor abundance, again, for women in London area, we find um, this is not uh, a powerful case, and this case is not made. The NFWW eventually amalgamates with the General Federation, uh, sorry, the Women's Trade Union League amalgamates with the General Federation of Trade Unions and the NFWW with the... Gas workers. <laughs> Gas workers, yes, the that's right. The general, it's called the General Workers at the time. Um, and the distinctive experience of the union organizer is taken by a few into continuing to organize among women, which partly explains that organization. MacArthur talks of old faces in new places. What happens to the public memory of these people? Sylvia Pankhurst writes 
several books about war. One's called The Home Front, one's called The Suffragette Movement. They sell well. She remains a public figure. The Mother's Arms, which is what she made out of the gunmaker's arms, her HQ in East London, is uh, commemorated and recorded. There's a plaque on the house she lived in, in Cheney Walk. Um, Julia Varley, workers' union organizer, is commemorated by locals, a local fund in the black country, and the Chainmakers has a living museum in the black country. But in London, the relics of organized labor, and particularly its women components, are very few and far between. And although there have been moves to have Mary MacArthur commemorated, perhaps um, with a blue pack, they have not succeeded. She is said not to be a significant enough figure. And I think it's an interesting general question about memories of unionism in public space in London, of how limited they are, except in areas with strong and continuing laborist traditions where you find commemorated things like people's palaces and um, other significant moments, um, largely in political rather than union history. I'm going to stop there. I'm sorry I've gone on okay. so long. No, no, no. Mm. More, 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 please. Um, thank you very much, Deborah, for that. I mean, I've I done some work in some of this area. What I was struck by was the brutality with which women war workers were displaced from their jobs at the end of the war. It was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, no explanation was necessary. Just go. I agree. And it is quite startling and unexpected if you look at the rhetorics that until quite a few months before the end of the war are still being used about um, their heroism, their sacrifice, um, um, and doing their duty. But that's also part of the reason why they go. M many of them are quite happy to go, because one of the things that most surprised me in my interviews was the discovery of how much most of them had disliked their war work, despite the celebration, despite the rising household income, and it was rising very substantially for many of them. The work itself was dirty, noisy, dangerous, uncomfortable, and they didn't like the way they were treated in the factory either. Um, it is true that the women I spoke to were largely um, very much of the respectable working class, and they had felt quite keenly the indignity of being factory workers, and they didn't like being addressed as girls and being patronized to some extent. Um, and so many of them were quite happy to go. And the other reason, following Alistair's question, the other reason that I think sometimes, um, I think I was certainly guilty of that when I wrote some of these things that uh, I've been talking from today, um, ignoring the actual war, <laughs> because the other thing that's going on is, is that people are absolutely exhausted, and this idea that you're going to go back to what it was like before is actually immensely attractive, even though, of course, you don't go back to how it was before, and the soldiers that come back don't go back to the jobs that they had before, because many of these jobs aren't, are only there for wartime, and they just shut them down. But I agree, despite the rhetoric, it is cruel and uh, harsh, and the institutions that represent them are not given any chance to negotiate it or navigate it. They, they, they lose out in these um, negotiations. Yeah.